to have in studio Alice Wellens, licensed uh, licensed clinical social worker. Oh my gosh, I almost said your wrong your wrong name, Alice. I'm so <laughs> flustered here with the beautiful orchid. Um, licensed clinical social worker and ha- a private practice here in Atlanta. Uh, her practice is www.alicewellens.com and keep your paper and pen hands handy because I will spell that for you in the next segment. We also have David Donaldson who is a certified addiction counselor and the clinical director and CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome. Thanks for having us. I am glad to be here. (laughs) As our listeners probably are aware, this is the fourth of a four-part series dedicated to issues related to disordered attachment and addiction. Initially, we talked about, in our first segment, the person with the disease of addiction and their attachment problems, mostly their loss of relationships with their intimate circle of friends, colleagues, and family, and their increasing attachment to their drug or behavior of choice. The second one, we looked at the relationship between the parents uh, of a young person who has the disease of addiction. Session or part three was dedicated to looking at the relationship with a spouse or significant other when one or both of them have the disease of addiction. And this week we're going to focus on what I think is probably one of the very most important relationship issues and probably one that's least talked about particularly when people are in active addiction treatment themselves, and that's when the person who has the disease of addiction has um, children and how their disease and their hopefully recovery impacts their young person. So this is a very important and often neglected topic not um, in terms of the addicts being treated themselves because we often talk about what it was like for them growing up, but it is difficult and a lot of the times uh, treatment programs and centers are not set up to be able to address the issues of the children of that person with addiction. So I'm very glad that we've included this and um, glad that you guys are here today. We're glad to be here. Alice, I know that you've been working on getting some uh, continuing education units for each one of these uh, four series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have an update for us, or do we need to tell people to check back with the website? Well, they'll check back with the website for the final information, but basically... After today's show, we'll be applying for continuing education units. You can do one, two, three, or four. So you can each one can be a standalone, or you can listen to all four and get four. And they they are built on each other and um, and also can be standalones. So check back for that, um, and it'll be really easy to do. You'll listen to the podcast. You'll answer three questions for each podcast, and then... Um, send that to us and we'll send you your CEUs. So I think that it hopefully will be an increased incentive for therapists, nurses, other folks who need continuing education credits because I think this is a very important topic and I think that while we could have gone on for days and days on each one of these segments, they hopefully give a good overview and some good resources for people who are interested in finding more information and doing further study. Right. I mean, 
I think many people in the field would say this is the most important work or dimension of the work. So it's really important to at least have a foundational understanding of how attachment relates to addiction. Um, and I think you can, you'll can you be able to check back on your website for the CEUs as well as my website. Exactly. So the AtlantaHealingCenter.com or Alice, that's A-L-Y-C-E, Wellens, W-E-L-L-O-N-S.com, AliceWellens.com. Uh, we may also have some additional information on America's Web Radio r- website to give you directions about how to obtain your continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts website, podcasts, or actual live uh, radio um, sessions. So, attachment theory. I think, though we've talked about it in each segment, it is really helpful to go back in case someone has missed uh, to talk about what we mean by attachment and attachment disorders. So, how about giving us a quick once over, Alice? (laughs) Do we want to go over the, the four attachment theories again? I think so, and this okay. is based on the work of John Bowlby and others um, looking at the relationship that um, develops between uh, the newborn child and the caregivers, generally the parents, but others can also play this role, and the way in which the child begins to attach to the person, begins to feel secure or not, and begins to develop their worldview and they're uh, setting the stage for their relationships in the future. Right. So Bowlby's work, um, and eventually Mary Ainsworth and then Mary Main's work, really centered around the understanding that not only is attachment a, a biological imperative that's rooted in evolutionary necessity, there are emotional and neurobiological dynamics that are created by that relationship as well. Um, as we said, Bowlby was not raised, his primary caretaker was a nanny, and so he and his four siblings um, were able to really use some of their own life history to understand attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the result of a lifetime of work was that there were four attachment presentations that came about, um, and feel free to chime in on, <laughs> on talking about these. But very quickly, the first one is secure attachment. And I think you said there it's 60%. 60%, yes. The, the studies show about 60% of people have a relatively secure attachment style. So we're not going to see those folks. <laughs> Probably not. We don't know those people. <laughs> um, but a secure attachment basically means that the child has an equal access to explore the world, go out and look around, and also return back. And I think that is best demonstrated when you see a toddler toddling off and looking at something and then they'll turn around and look back and see the primary attachment figure there smiling or waving or giving some message of it's okay that you're out there exploring and you can come back whenever you want. So they have this sense that the world is a safe place but there's also a secure base that I can go to for comforting and attending when I need to. And um, that's kind of what we're, we're striving for. Well, and I think that's part of what's so crucial about today's topic and looking at mm-hmm. children of alcoholics um, because, because what it talks about is that secure person, that safe person. And w- what, we're, what we're looking at is people whose secure people 
are predictably unpredictable. And these children are learning how to, to grow up and, and function in a world where life is consistently unpredictable. Which takes us to the avoidant yes. style. So the avoidant um, presentation of the attachment disorder, as we've talked about, they create a blasé presentation, So, and that's a defense. So in the strange situation experiment, which we've talked about, where they took the mothers and the children and the mother would leave the room, a stranger would enter the room, the stranger would leave the room, the mother would come back into the room. And they basically drew all this information from that which created these attachment styles. And what they found with the avoidant children is that they would not show any emotion when, or very little when the mother would leave and come, when the stranger would leave and come. But their heart rates and their cortisol levels showed that they were in distress. So they learned to not show that they were in distress. And then they also, what didn't happen was they didn't get attended to. So they didn't return to the caregiver, to the mother, in, in the case of these studies, to be comforted or to be acknowledged or uh, to be greeted. They didn't expect that their mother was going to be there or not there. Didn't mean they weren't very anxious about it, but they had developed a as you said, a defense that allowed them to cope with the supreme anxiety of, I don't know if she's going to be there or not, and I don't know if she's going to care if she's there or not. So this is a very um, uh, disturbing way in which you would see a, a young child act because that's not normal behavior, obviously. Right. And David, you can speak to this more in depth, but I think that you often see this when it may be the hero child, which is typically the oldest in a family where there's, um, where there's some type of addiction going on or some type of mental health issue. And they overcompensate by being really good, really independent. They look great. Um, they're a great student. They're a good athlete. They're good in the theater. They're good at whatever they're doing. But something eventually happens where they kind of snap. And this is the kid where you hear everybody saying, this isn't like him. This isn't like her. We never saw that coming. Well, they just had defended against that for all these years. But as we know with defenses, they're only going to take you to a certain place. Um, they don't, they don't, they're not for the long haul. Right. <laughs> they, were, they were a means of survival and a time when you needed to yeah. survive, but they don't allow you to, to actually develop connected, close relationships with uh, healthy adults. They allow you to develop relationships that function with other people who also don't want to be close or connected. Um, Part of what we would talk about with that hero is that they had the role in the family of providing a sense of pride. That's right. Um, It wasn't happening with the parents. The parents had had their issues going on, and so everybody could look at this firstborn child and and feel that this must be a, a... very successful family because look how successful this child is right and it creates a continued sense of denial for the parents like we we can't we can't be so bad if we have this child who's you know the star athlete or the star student or you know just kind of the star about town um and so it 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 can perpetuate the problem for a really long time. Well, and part of what's so crucial in, in doing this work and looking at that is that part of the denial system for the addict or the alcoholic is to think that their behavior hasn't impacted anybody else. Right. And they'll look at their kids and they'll say, well, my kid's very successful. I haven't impacted my child. Um, or 
my child is is only 13, so obviously they're too young to have been impacted yet. Yeah. And what we know is that these roles begin showing up um, as as with the monkey studies. 42 um, minutes. <laughs> very, very early in a person's life. When, right. the, when the need for balance and the need for stasiousness, homeostasis. homeostasis is there, it, it is impacted upon the family. And I think, David, you often talk in our family program um, on Wednesday evenings at the Atlanta Healing Center uh, about these roles and that the primary emotion that the hero, this person who on the outside looks good, sounds good, acts well, everybody loves, the pride of the, of the family, the school, and the community, is insecurity and anxiety. They yeah. never feel like it's enough. They're always worried that all of the house of cards behind them is going to tumble and that so much lies on their ability to keep outside attention on themselves because the family is so dysfunctional and because um, one or both parents are really crumbling. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting, because if you looked at that person, and you mentioned firstborn, and it is often the firstborn, that person inside is very anxious, feels like an imposter, feels like um, if people really knew what was going on inside of me, I look good on the outside, but inside I am terrified, I'm very anxious, I'm insecure, and I'm fearful all the time. Right, right. So that's that blasé um, presentation that they they have learned to defend against all the feelings they have about what's going on at home by by overperforming. Well, and they'll look like other firstborn kids because firstborn kids tend to get a lot more parental time and everything. Mm-hmm. So they'll look like other firstborn kids, but on the inside, they're they're feeling inadequate and feeling like they can't do enough to fix the family system exactly we're going to take a break now when we come back we're going to talk about other attachment styles and how these relate to children born to parents with addiction thanks for listening the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp what should be the course of treatment who is the best person to render treatment and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. In studio today, I have Alice Wellens, licensed clinical social worker in private practice here in Atlanta, and David Donaldson, uh, therapist and clinical director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Thank you both for being here. As you may have gathered by now, this is the fourth, I'm kind of sad, of our four-part series of Disordered Detachments and Addiction. Um, just, I think, for our listeners to put into perspective how important it is to look at this relationship because, as David, you often say, and I hear parents say all the time, well, my disease hasn't affected the kids. I wait till they go to bed. I don't drink or use until I put them on the bus in the morning. I'm a really good parent. Uh, I think that sometimes... Unfortunately, particularly when they're having the babies around, when they feel like they have the most freedom to not be fully present, either literally or figuratively in their child's life, that it doesn't matter, that it's only going to matter when the kids are teenagers and are more aware they aren't realizing that their disease does impact their children and even newborns. So being fully present, being a a responsible, caring adult is really important. Uh, Statistics say that it's it's estimated that 8 million children younger than the age of 18 in the United States live with at least one adult who has a substance use disorder. That's a rate of more than one in every 10 children. So if you just look at Mm -hmm. a park, you go to the mall, anywhere you go, realizing how frequent there is a child that is being directly impacted right now with their parent or their loved their caretaker having the disease of addiction, it's pretty overwhelming. So I think this is such an important show. Well, and I think there's some some visuals that even help to illustrate that a little bit more. I think about a client who, um, as a 14-year-old, he would talk about sitting at the dinner table, and on one end of the table, Dad would be on his third beer, and on the other end of the table, Mom would be on her finishing off a bottle of wine. And he talked about wanting to talk about school, wanting to talk about friends, but basically being alone at the dinner table. And so it kind of highlights that the attachment just wasn't there for the person to be able to do any, um, have any sense of bonding because they were checked out. Right. They may be present. They may be at dinner. They fixed dinner. They stayed there through the dinner. um, And feeling like that was good. And I'm not saying it wasn't good, but for this young person, they realize that they may be here, but they're really not fully present, and that it causes some suffering for children. Yeah, when we go back to attachment language, one of the things we talk about 
consistently is secure base and constant object. And that secure base, you know, is not just um, the the attachment figure. It's it's what you're talking about now. It's knowing that there's a place they can return to and be seen and get gotten. Mm-hmm. Get and gotten is a get great gotten. phrase. And that's, that's what... Um, Anybody who talks about neuroscience, therapy, attachment, any of that stuff, one of the things that they say, the the primary thing is that we all want to just get gotten, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know when you are gotten, and and you also know when you're trying to be something for that person. And so that's what all those disconnections kids start talking about, is they had to disconnect from some core part of themselves in order to survive in their environment. And that is just profound damage for, for a lot of kids. Um, and that's what their work in therapy is, is usually all about. You know, trying to, as Jung says, doing that shadow work, mm-hmm. going back and pulling out of the shadows all the things that they had to put in the shadows in order to survive their childhoods. Um, okay, so the two last styles of attachment. Yes, please. So the last two styles of attachment are ambivalent attachment. And a lot of times that presentation will be angry or passive. In the studies, you would see that the children were preoccupied with their mother and they were too preoccupied with their attachment figure to, in, so they didn't ex- freely explore. So they were very anxious and kind of clinging to their they mom. They were anxious and clinging and it wasn't they weren't getting nurturing, they weren't getting um, secure base feelings, which just continued to escalate the anxiety. I think a lot of times this shows up in that um, I hate you, don't leave me presentation. Like, please be close to me in order to make me feel better, but being close to people is not something that's safe, so I need you to go away. So we see we see and feel this a lot with people. Come here, come here, go away, go away. Come here, come here, go away, go away. I'm a mess. I love you. Don't leave me. So Alice is doing the communicating with her hands. Yeah. If you're on the outside, you can't see. On yeah. one hand, pushing away, and the other hand, pulling closer. Yeah. yeah. And, you you know, I mean, you can you can really feel that. So um, the, the mothers were typically unpredictable and occasionally unavailable. And so that just caused this anxiety response of just scanning the environment for am I safe, am I not safe, yeah. And then the last one, which came 20 years after the original study, it came when Mary Main went back and started reviewing all the footage, and what she saw was that in the first 5 to 10 seconds of the mother returning into the room, there was this reaction that some of the kids had that just got overlooked because it happened so fast, Um, and that was labeled a disorganized attachment. And the reaction that she saw was um, they were caught between an impulse to flee and an impulse to connect. And you would see them put their hand over their mouth in that universal gesture um, of shock and terror and disbelief. And you would see them collapse on the floor and then get back up. So there was this sense of they were just completely undone. You know, mm-hmm. you would, as you would say with an adult, they just couldn't pull it together. Um, but, you know, these are little kids. So their central nervous systems, their way that they see the world, their way that, the way they start to have relationships with people is born out of, out of somewhere in these four styles. And, and I, I think it's really important to, to recognize what was going on 
during this time? I mean, you mentioned that the, the child and the mother were brought into the room. They were there for a few minutes. Then the mother leaves. The child's there. And that all of this is being videotaped, hours and hours and hours of videotape. Then a stranger comes in. The stranger doesn't hurt them or threaten them or act aggressive or violent. Then the stranger leaves and mother comes back. So the, there was nothing violent. There was nothing um, shocking. There was nothing overtly threatening other than I don't know who you are and I'm here by myself, which is very scary for a child, but this was not a um, horror movie, roller coaster, scary stuff, jumping out of boxes kind of situation. This was just um, a room, some chairs, mom, the child, and a stranger in and out. And yet you could see profound, profound ways in which these children could not handle their emotions and, and, and that the distorted ways in which they learn to cope. It also really, really validates that we are all looking for a secure base. You know, Mm -hmm. we are always all looking for a secure base. And if you don't find it within your family, you know, hopefully you'll go and find it with with a partner somewhere, which is also why you see the value of, of partnerships. You know, they're not just to raise children or have a career or do tax things. deduction right exactly <laughs> you know a lot of times it's the essential repair work and um, that's why you see couple we talked about the couples last week but why you see couples so distressed when their secure base is threatened by the disease of addiction but if you want to watch the footage it's online um, it's the um, strange situation 1980 1963 with Mary Ainsworth and it's very very tedious and very benign if you just watch it it's amazing what they pulled out of it it's interesting when you th- when you think about the family roles that we're talking about and that was all done by by Sharon um, um, Wag Schneider or something along those lines I have <laughs> such a hard time with her last name but she was doing this work at, at essentially the same time frame early 70s and, and hers was coming from the perspective of working with people and having family members coming and talking to her her about Mm -hmm. this is going to make you better helping my family and she started realizing these various roles but when we think about these roles in relation to attachment theory they they really do fit the the next kid that we often talk about is the scapegoat or the troubled kid the one that everybody puts the blame on and and his role was to be a distraction he wasn't going to sneak out the back of the school he was going to go out the front of the school and he was going to slam the door on his way out and and light a cigarette right there in front of the principal (laughs) to make a point of I am distracting you from everything else that's going on. And and so inside this kid would be filled with the anger that you were talking about, not able to get his needs met and not able to um, to function within the home, but finding a peer group out, outside of the home and being kind of the hero outside of the house where he could be um, honored for being so angry and disruptive. Yeah, I think that child, some of the strengths are they're close to their own feelings um, they have less denial and greater honesty. They're gonna they're gonna <laughs> tell you what they think, <laughs> right? Um, they can be creative. They have a sense of humor, and they have ability to lead without questioning. There's a sense of strength about them. Um, the the things that they struggle with tend to be inappropriate expressions of anger. You know, especially when all this is coming out during adolescence, when there's all that rebellion and finding your own identity by being against something. Um, they have difficulty following directions. 
they can be intrusive and they can start having social problems at young ages. Well, because anger for them is becoming the wall mm -hmm. that's keeping them safe and keeping everybody, mm -hmm. now I'm doing the hand signals, mm -hmm. at an arm's length <laughs> um, um, rather than actual anger at a as a feeling. There, it's more as a protection. Right. And part of this is also the way that they're trying to get attention in their family. The hero is trying to get attention from the outside and distract, but also attention from the family by being really good. Um, the scapegoat is also trying to get somebody to pay attention by being really bad. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the family roles and attachment. Thanks so much for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I promised you I would give you Alice's website as well as the Atlanta Healing Center, so I hope you have your paper and pencil uh, ready. That's Alice, A-L-Y-C-E, Wellens, W-E-L-L-O-N-S, dot com. Uh, 
Alice is an excellent clinician. She works with individuals, with couples and families. She works with folks who have the disease of addiction. She also works with folks who have other issues in terms of relationships and psychological issues. So please check out her website and also remember to check it out if you're interested in finding out more about how to get continuing education credit for listening to one or all of this four-part series that will be available as a download on iTunes, usually a couple of days after the broadcast. So we're talking today about that very important and yet often neglected uh, in the in the real moment, the, uh, the and that's the relationship between uh a parent who has the disease of addiction and their children. Often when people come into treatment, the crisis is focused on the person with addiction. You've got to get that person stabilized. You've got to get that person safe. Lots of time and energy happen around that, and it's appropriate and should be done. But in the periphery, we see the family, we see the children um, often suffering a lot and often assumed to be too little, too young to understand. And as we hear all the time, my disease didn't really affect my children. I was a good parent. This isn't to put guilt on anybody, but I think it is important to recognize that we need to look and we need to think about and we need to see. Um, we'll talk in the last segment about some options and some support for children who find themselves um, in this situation. So right before we were talking about the hero and the scapegoat, um, these are two classic roles that children assume. What else have we got that we see? Um, and sticking with the, the ambivalent style, we also have the uh, the lost child, and and this child is is typically very much lost. They tend to be in the room. They tend to be watching TV or what, listening to the stereo with their headphones on, so they're not making any sort of distraction. In the classroom, they send, tend to sit right in the middle. They're not to the close to the front where they're going to get called on, and they're not in the back where they're going to be expected to to be a trouble child. But they're right in the middle, and they are getting B minuses or Cs. They're not getting As where they're going to get a lot of attention. They're not getting Fs where they're going to mm-hmm. get a lot of attention. They're just right there, middle of the road. And and the feeling that um, when times get stressful for them, the feeling that they most connect to is loneliness because they really haven't had the ability to form relationships or form attachment. But as you were saying with the ambivalence from the outside, they look quite calm. This is the kid mom can rely on because she knows where he's at or where she's at. They're not causing any problems. Not causing any problems. So it's like, oh, he's just upstairs, you know, playing games. He's fine. You know, they're, and the system is relieved to not to have somebody in the system that doesn't need anything. I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> they, they need a lot um, and isn't causing any problems because that type of system doesn't have a lot of resources to give. So they're, they're thrilled to not have to deal with something. Um, some of the beliefs that drive the lost child are um, if I don't get emotionally involved, I won't get hurt. Um, I don't make a difference anyway, so kind of what's the point? And it's best not to draw attention to myself slash the family. Um, and one of the things that they're doing also, you often see these kids partnering up with really dramatic mates because that's what they're used to. Mm-hmm. And that's the, those are the type of coping skills they have cultivated um, 
to, to handle in a Right, in a to system. tolerate. So they know they have these skills to do that, even though you hear them say over and over again, when I get out of this house, I am never, ever going to dot, dot, dot. But because of the coping skills that each child has created for themselves, they cast a net for that very person that they say they are never going to partner up with. And part of what we often talk about is that the family needs these roles, Mm -hmm. and in particular the family needs the hero and the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So when that first hero goes off to college, it's often this lost child who gets pulled into that role, and they're having to function in this way, but inside they really don't ever feel like that's where they need to be. Right. They often struggle... um, Again, with loneliness, they haven't been like the mascot, or excuse me, we haven't gotten there yet. They haven't been like the scapegoat that's found a peer group um, outside the home where they're at least getting some support. The hero is getting recognized for all of the great works that they do and the accomplishments that they make. This person really is very lonely. Their interaction is usually with social media. Mm -hmm. They're often overweight. Um, They have very few friends, maybe one or two. The other thing that I find very interesting when you talk to children um, in these family um, systems, the kids aren't talking to each other. The kids are not supporting each other. They all live in this chaos and fear and uncertainty, and yet they are just doing all they can do to maintain their role and they aren't really supportive of each other often. And it's, it's a very sad, especially for this um, lost child, because they really are alone. I find that one of two things happens in that family system for the siblings. One is it's every man for themselves, mm-hmm. and everybody's just trying the very best they can to get through and get out. Or the sibling unit in some way bonds together and creates this very strong um, system in and of itself and starts to function that way. They start doing parentified things for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, They become a very closed system. You don't see a lot of in other things or people mm-hmm. coming in, people who marry into those systems, you know, it's kind of a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. You'll hear them talking about, gosh, they're so close to each other, you know, because they, they bonded together. And they ro- they raised each and other. And they raised each other. And they might not have talked about what was going on, but they, they started parenting themselves and each other. Mm-hmm. So it's either every man for themselves or this tightly bonded parentified system that gets created. Where kids are acting in a parental role, not only to their impaired parent or parents, um, but to a younger sibling, to another sibling, to try and uh, I got to get up and get breakfast for my little brother and I've got to help my sister with her um, school project because the parents are not going to be willing or able to do that. Right. And this doesn't have to be a family where there's addiction. This can be a family Mm -hmm. where there could be mental illness, there could be abuse, or there just could be other issues that are going on that for whatever reason the parents are not you know parenting in a way that causes the system to function more properly and i think yes this whole series is focused on um, addiction and the attachment disorders that we see around addiction but it's a very good point alice that 
this can happen in a lot of families where one or both parents are in the military, where um, there is divorce or death or separation in some way, where one of the children is ill or a parent is very ill, uh, mental illness, lots of things. A, p- a parent gets um incarcerated, lots of things can disrupt the the system, resulting in the remaining parent being overly stressed, overworked, and and not emotionally available for the children. It's not a purposeful thing. Everybody's trying to survive in this setting. And so this isn't about blame, but this is about trying to explain why people have so much difficulty. Well, and I think that that survival piece is what's so crucial, is that all of the members of the family are trying to survive. And that, that last role that we talk about, um, the, the mascot, is, is just the personification of he is going to or she is going to be whatever needs to happen to make the place feel safe. So they're, they're the child that can walk into a room and immediately know um, the emotional level, the attention level, what areas need distraction, whatever areas need to be lightened up a little bit, and, and, and do exactly that. And when we look at the last style of attachment, that disorganized, it, it's real easy to see they're going to flop down and fall if they need to draw attention that way, or they're going to... Um, suddenly crack a joke if they need Mm -hmm. to do that they're going to do whatever it takes to provide safety and security within that system and break the tension and inside their dominant feeling is is fear they they spend life terrified that that they're not going that something bad's going to happen they're tap dancing for their life I mean, really and truly, inside, that's what they mm-hmm. feel like. They may look funny and fun, and there's a light around them, and everybody enjoys being around them. But inside, you know, as we talked about, the, the attachment has a biological imperative in its in its very first form with a newborn. If there's not an attachment figure there, the child will die. What happens with, with a grown-up child or a growing-up child is they their amygdala and their limbic system feel that way. If I don't tap dance for my life, the system's going to fall apart. I'm going to die. I'm not getting gotten. Everything's scary and out of control. And um, I like to think of the the um, uh, mascot as sort of one of the jesters in Shakespeare's plays. Like, they're, they're on the stage, and they're funny, but there's also, like, the words they're using and the things they're saying are really shedding a pretty stark, scary, sad, truthful light on what's actually happening in the family. Right. The scapegoat's going to say it directly, mm-hmm. going to call the parent out, going to tell the family secrets. The mascot is going to do that, but under the guise of humor and under the guise of distraction. So they're also truth tellers, mm-hmm. but in a lighter, well, it's not, you, it feels in a lighter way. Um, I see a lot of comedians, and not to be making any judgment there or um, making any diagnoses, but you often see that behind their their jokes, their banter, their presentation is a lot of anger, is a lot of hostility, is a lot of fear. And many of them may have actually had this kind of experience of being the mascot growing up to um, distract the family, relieve the tension, and yet they are so anxious because they are constantly aware of how everybody in the room is feeling, what everybody's doing, where's the danger, where do I need to, you know, um, rodeo clown, where do I need to um, distract the bull so that the rider can be sa- taken to safety. It's a very 
tedious and draining and um, and fearful job. And, and a, an area that I see this happening where it's not addiction, but it's that same sort of instability is, is families where there's financial instability or employment instability, where a kid comes home and they're moving with no chance to say goodbye to their friends and no chance to figure out even why. But next thing they know, they're living in a whole new state. That's a scary time. We need to take a break. Time goes fast. When we come back, we're going to talk about what are some of the options and what are some of the solutions for these attachment disorders. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and I have with me Alice Wellens and David Donaldson. We've been working on this four-part series, and I can't believe it's drawing to the end. We're in the last quarter of the last session. So um, I hope that all of you have enjoyed this and that those of you interested in getting continuing education units will check back at alicewellens.com or the Atlanta Healing Center or America's Web Radio websites to find more information about how you can obtain continuing education credits for um, this series either individually or all together. This time we are talking about disordered attachments as they relate to the children of 
folks who suffer with the disease of addiction. And we've outlined the various attachment styles and how this might develop, the roles that the young person may develop within the family as a coping strategy to deal with their um, loved one who is ill from the disease of addiction, or as we've pointed out, it could be many other kinds of environmental um, situations that create these kinds of roles. And the reason for it is for the family to be able to survive what is happening to them. Um, One of the questions that I'm often asked, um, often by patients as they're coming into treatment, what about the family? Now, we, of course, at the Atlanta Healing Center and most other formal treatment centers have a family program that is um, a very important role that David Donaldson plays a big part in. Well, and and in there, there's a huge emphasis on on the recovering alcoholic or addict being present and their family being present to begin addressing the family issues, to to provide education and and awareness for them for change to start happening. Um, Real often what we'll talk about is if you're not inviting your family, really what you're doing is protecting your addiction because you're keeping this vital piece of your recovery out and and you're here learning to talk about feelings and to deal with things and you're going home to a place where you're not able to do that and you're going to set up a relapse. So we keep the perspective really in the realm of the adults. But part of what we wanted to look at today is that the recovery options are also out there for children. Um, in light of not having a, a lot of options, the, real often the emphasis is on we're going to work on having healthy adults so that y'all can begin raising healthy children. Um, um, but I know that you're aware of some options other than that. Yes. Yeah, so it is, and most treatment centers will allow um, a children uh, 16 or older to be present in in the family programs. But one of the programs that I would highly recommend people consider for children ages 7 through 12 um, is Jerry Moe, M-O-E. Uh, his program at the Betty Ford Center, uh, he also has satellite programs in Colorado and in Texas. These are three- to four-day intensive specifically for children of this age. He wants them to have been able to go to school and learn how to be somewhat organized and follow directions and be able to be secure enough in being away from their parent that they will be okay to attend his workshops. And what he does with them is to help address the idea that mommy or daddy is ill. It's not my fault. I didn't cause it. There isn't anything that I can do to make it better. I have to learn how to talk about my feelings, find a safe place, find safe people in my life. And he does this through a variety of interventions with the kids. He has uh, art and music. They have um, role-playing. They talk about their feelings. They talk about the scary times in their life when Mommy got arrested or Daddy um, left the house. Um, Out of these... Um, interactions with the children he writes a comic book called um, The Stories of Beamer and Beamer is this little doll that he gives each one a stuffed doll that has a head that's a light bulb and the light bulb turns different colors depending on the child's feelings 
So when the child is mad, it's red. When they're sad, it's blue. When they're happy, it's yellow. And he has these um, different ways in which children can identify when they feel blue or red or yellow and uh, talks about the stories. And in the stories, he will actually send a comic book out every month for 12 months after a child has attended. The stories in there are how I, how I, how Beamer handled his feelings. And it talks about the real life stories that he's heard from the children in the program and ways in which they can learn to find a safe teacher or a safe friend or a grandmother or uh, a safe place to be to talk about their feelings and to show that their light bulb can be whatever color it needs to be. It's a wonderful program, nominally priced. In fact, they often have scholarships. So that's Jerry Moe's program, M-O-E, at um, Betty Ford Hazelden Center. And I would highly recommend it to any folks who have young children and um, that they just want to have them be helped and supported through their parents' recovery. That sounds amazing because, you know, as we know, the main thing that happens through attachment, through addiction, through children in the family is they disconnect from something inside themselves in order to learn to manage to be in the system. And so that little, that little light bulb, they learn to reconnect. I mean, the goal mm-hmm. of recovery is, you know, they play the, with the words on, on that all the time, recover reclaim, reconnect, um, is that's what it's all about. And it's that, that word of integration. You mm-hmm. know, we're always looking to reintegrate all of these internal working system parts of ourselves back together. And that's a great tool to use for that. It really is, and it's, it's definitely worth the investment for the child. For older children, we have some other options. We have Alatine, which is a 12-step recovery program specifically designed to support um, teens as their family gets into recovery, where they have a place to go and talk and to understand that they're not alone, that other people struggle, that other people are able to get their families back, that recovery can be possible not just for their loved one, but also from them for themselves. So I think that's really important. And teens like that because they don't sit around and have group therapy at Alateen because <laughs> teens don't like that. <laughs> But it's a peer group, number one, and teens thrive on having a peer group. That's the most important thing developmentally that's happening during that time is their peer group. And also, they get, without it being direct and hit, being hit over the head with it, a sense of they're not alone. Um, you know, the rules for a dysfunctional family are don't think about it, don't talk about it, and don't feel it. <laughs> so without it being, without them being hit over the head with like a, a therapy type format they get to talk about it they get to think it and they get to feel it and in a way with with their other peers and they they tend to have fun and it tends to be light you don't you, if you were watching it you might not really see that work is happening but profound things are mm-hmm. are happening in there and i think it's very important because not only are these young people um suffering and uh having some difficulties, they're also themselves at risk for developing the disease of addiction, both from genetics and also from their environmental exposure. So this is a very important intervention. What do you recommend if someone is an adult child? 
now I've grown up, I'm an adult, I grew up in an alcoholic family, what should I do? Well, I think that um, attending Al-Anon meetings, attending Codependency Anonymous meetings, um, are, are very helpful as at finding a place where they can begin communicating and talking about it and hearing um, their stories coming from other people without necessarily having to say it themselves. Um, in a lot of areas of the country, there's groups called ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholic, um, which is that same sort of format. There, There's um, <coughs> less of those uh, in Georgia um, because most of those have folded into the, to the Al-Anon um, programs, um, but the, the message is the same and getting out there and getting support for yourself. Um, recently, I was also talking to a woman who's been working with family recovery, um, um, which is beginning to grow a lot more in the Georgia area, and, and they're getting a lot more support um, in a 12-step format, but for families um, dealing with addiction rather than than um, just the addict or the, or the enabler. I also think it's important to for those people to start to educate themselves. So Claudia Black's work is excellent. Mm-hmm. Melody Beatty's work is excellent. Those are great starting points. Um, so just to start to learn what are the characteristics that you have developed by surviving your family of origin because a lot of times you don't you you have no awareness that that's what you've done to survive it's just what you did to survive you have no idea that you might need to do some other things to adjust out when you get outside of that system or you're just going to recreate that system um so i think it's really important to get that education you can also get that by working with a therapist you know, to start to learn why some of the things that you're trying might not be working or why you might be kind of re creating a lot of these scenarios that are just confounding you as to why you're why do you keep hooking up with the same person and doing this at your job over and over again i think the imago therapy can also be very helpful in learning to understand how we love how we view relationships and a lot of that can also come and be helpful in terms of supporting someone who may have had a disordered attachment in their early years Thank you so much, Alice and David, for this series and for being here today. Thank you to the listeners. Please check out Alice at alicewellens.com and theatlantahealingcenter.com. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.